It's the Criterion edition of Portland at the Movies as we dive into the special features of 1985's Courier of Death. In a world, in a time, in a land of eternal beauty, all that stands between a city and a disaster, in a city where anything can happen, if you thought you had seen it all... Welcome to another Portland at the Movies. My name is Todd Workoven, and with me, as always, is Mark Middleton. How are you, Mark? I'm really well. Good, and we're joined, as always, by Brian, the Unipiper Kid. How are you, Brian? I'm doing really well, Todd. Great. We have a very special guest today, uh, Mr. Dan, and I'm going to claim ignorance because I still don't know quite how your last name is pronounced. Uh, Feebiger. Feebiger. Well, Dan Feebiger, uh, the, the, uh, the musician behind the movie Courier of Death and and many, 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 many other uh, Portland movie stories. Uh, I listened back to the episode that we did uh, a while back in Courier of Death and um, it seems like every time we research a movie, we uh, two different people come up. One of them is David Walker and one of them is uh, Tom Shaw and you. And so to finally have <laughs> you uh, come in studio to talk about uh, one of the best, I think still my favorite movie that we've done on this show. Hands down. Uh, Courier of Death. So uh, welcome, welcome to you. Yeah, thanks Yay. a lot. <laughs> uh, so uh, we we actually spoke with you a, a couple days ago last Wednesday and uh, you were uh, telling us the stories and, and all of your experiences and it was, it was quite amazing. So um, can you kind of let us know kind of a quick background um, of, of how you came to be in the Portland movie scene, in in the music aspect of the Portland scene from where uh, where you were down in California. Well, um, uh, I'll go back a little further than that. Uh, I spent my first eight years in Spokane, Washington. My dad was the manager of an indoor theater and a drive-in theater, so I literally grew up watching movies. Oh, wow. And uh, we had plenty of radios, and so I literally grew up as rock and roll, as rhythm and blues evolved into rock and roll. Up there, there was a rhythm and blues station that played a lot of black music in Canada, and we could get it down in Spokane. And so I heard a lot of that music, and that became real ingrained in me. And um, uh, I was into playing drums at a really early age. I used to play tin, you know, tin cans and Quaker oats boxes, and I had a, a bicycle basket with a bunch of loose hoops, and I would, you know, loose, loose spokes, and I'd hit it, and it sounded kind of like a cymbal, you know, in a sandbox. And my folks started buying me t- uh, toy drum sets that would break instantly because they weren't real drum heads. And, and uh, so I was kind of musically inclined, at least on drums, right from the beginning. In uh, January 1960, we moved to Portland because my dad got a job paying that paid about five times more as a milk driver at the Carnation Milk Company, delivering milk and uh, dairy products. And so I um, spent the rest of my life in Portland except for one year in 1983 when I lived down in the L.A. area. And uh, um, I started taking formal music lessons at the grade school in Portland that I went to, a Catholic grade school called Holy Redeemer right near the house uh, that we lived in and that I still live in. I moved back in later on. And um, uh, I took uh, piano lessons, and for a little while I took cello lessons. And uh, then they they recommended that uh, my folks started uh, buy me a snare drum, and, and then I had to do my own work and save up and buy a cymbal and a hi-hat and, and eventually piece together a drum set. 
And uh, by the time I got to high school, I had a whole drum set. And I won a talent contest at North Catholic High School <laughs> at the tail end of my sophomore year. And so I became known for drumming and music. I also took less music, uh, music lessons, drumming lessons. I learned the, all the basic 26 military rudiments. And so that made my drumming really precise when I played rock or rhythm and blues or any other genre. I was also in the Portland Junior Symphony for six years. Hmm. And we toured uh, Europe. Oh, wow. Yeah. So then when you went uh, down to California, as you're telling us, you worked, you didn't go down there for music, or what you ended up doing down there didn't involve music, or did it? How did you get down to Southern California? Yeah, not so much music, but film. Uh, You know, I I didn't limit myself just to music uh, because of all this film influence I had when I was growing up. I was just as interested in the film industry, uh, how films were made. um, And uh, I even made an hour-long movie of my childhood, how growing up watching uh, the films of Ray Harryhausen and George Powell and how they influenced me and affected me. And so I really got into that kind of animation, then other kinds of animation and special effects and visual effects. So, uh, And so I learned how to do a lot of that stuff, self-taught on kind of an amateur level. 1967, I got a hold of a little 8-millimeter camera and started making my little weird animated films and visual effects films and just uh, learning how to do it by just doing it. And I still have those, and someday I'll find a way to get those restored so that they can be seen by somebody. And um, so I was much into the film industry and visual effects and animation as I was music. And uh, to keep myself from getting bored, I would go back and forth between the two, you know. And so I had these four loves going on at the same time. And um, uh, there was an old special effects guy named Linwood G. Dunn. whose career went all the way back to the silent film era. And uh, he was the effects guy, visual effects guy, for RKO Pictures. And these are the people who made King Kong, the original King Kong, and Citizen Kane with Orson Welles, and a lot of, those, and a lot of other great famous movies. And um, he uh, invented the optical printer and refined it and won a bunch of technical Oscars and stuff for it. And he became a member of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences and the American Cinematographers. And he just knew everybody in the industry. He knew Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton and Orson Welles and Howard Hughes and, and uh, uh, Lucy and Desi when, you know, RKO was sold to Howard Hughes. And then he sold it to Lucy and Desi. And, and uh, so Lynn just stayed with him. And so he got to know all these people. And... Uh, and uh, he came up to the University of Oregon in 1975, and I and an animator friend roommate went down there to see him and look at watch his show. And, and we had started working on a little animated effects film called Eon. And uh, we'd shot the live action sections, and now we were working on the visual effects parts. And uh, we took what we had that we had pieced together down and showed it to him, and he was pretty impressed. And he said, well, if you guys want to pull up stakes and come down to L.A., there's a new effects studio down there being set up. But neither one of us even had a car. And so getting down to L.A. and living there and just starting all over from scratch, it wasn't too feasible for us. And I later learned on that was ILM, and we turned down a chance to work on the original Star Wars. But you don't find that out till later right. on. You know? <laughs> like the guy who sold his Apple stock for $10,000 that one time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Uh, oh, and so, um, but I kept in touch with Lynn Dunn, and we sent letters back and forth, and he gave me a free subscription to American Cinematographer, and I wound up writing articles for him, and I wrote articles for another film magazine, a fanzine called Cin- Cine Fantastique, and, and uh, uh, so, you know, I, I learned more about filmmaking from reading these magazines cover to cover, and then writing articles, and finding these people, the real people who worked on these films that I admired and interviewing them over the phone and stuff like that. So it was all a giant learning experience. And I took film classes at PSU. This is before the Northwest Film and Video Center really set up their formal film classes. So, Was there any sort of film uh, program at PSU at the time? Kind of a real small one. It was called the Center for the Moving Image. And, and there was only two teachers. There was uh, Fritz Lang's assistant director. Wow, she's Louise. Na- <laughs> named Andreas Dynam. Huh. Okay. It's a great and, name. And he spoke in a German accent, you know. And, and he had all these stories about, uh, you know, Metropolis and Gosh. the Fritz Lang movies. And he moved to uh, Hollywood when Fritz Lang did. And so he continued to work on his films there. And uh, so he, t- he taught scripting classes. Uh, but he'd never written a script, <laughs> you know. Uh, and then there was Tom Taylor, who was real into making doc- documentary films, and both of them were very anti-Hollywood, and they were very independent, and you know, just get away from the Hollywood scene. And so they didn't really teach anything about the Hollywood system. And uh, but they had equipment, and they had little cameras, eight millimeters and sixteen millimeters, and so taking their classes gave you access to this equipment, so you could go out and make your little films. And a lot of talented filmmakers and untalented ones uh, made films, you know, l- learned as they went, and uh, that was the whole nature of the class. And those classes started up formally just as I was starting college at PSU in 1970. And they became actual sequences that you could get credit for in 1973, the fall of 73. So I took that sequence during my senior year. Hmm. And um, Andreas Dynam, a couple weeks into it, had a stroke. And so he was gone until the following spring when he had fully recovered. And when he was there, he mostly just told stories about Fritz Lang. And so we didn't really learn anything from him, except (laughs) we heard these really cool stories. So... um, and so, but you know, uh, way back then, unbeknownst to me, there was a nice editing system there, 60 millimeter editing system there. And I made a little short film about a projectionist running a Buster Keaton film about a projectionist and enjoying the film he's running in parallel to the audience enjoying the film he's running. And it was kind of a synergy relationship going on between the two that I was trying to establish. <laughs> And um, it was called changeover, and it, it, the requirement was it had to be educational. So it was educational about how to do changeovers from one projector to oh, another yeah. mm-hmm. in the middle of a movie. Those little cues in the yeah. upper right-hand corners, little circles. Yeah. And uh, so it told all about that. And um, so I made that film on that editing system. Then years later, when I work on Courier, there's that exact same editing system, and I realized Tom Shaw had loaned that editing system to the Center for the Moving Image. To Tom, PSU. <laughs> yeah, to PSU. And so, you know, I, so there's all, even they were connected with Tom Shaw. Cool. So if you could give, like, the, the, just the thumbnail of who Tom Shaw is to our listeners that might not be yeah. familiar. Well, from what I've been able to gather from my research, he was born in Rhode Island, and he got good at carpentry and machining, metal machining, and uh, uh, putting countertops, you know, high-quality countertops and marble 
countertops and, and uh, other materials that countertops are made with. And so he, he's, uh, he got good carpentry, wood, machining, that kind of thing. I guess he lived in Florida for a while, was building boats or doing something on boats. And eventually he came to Portland, and he had an opportunity to go into a partnership with another guy named uh, Dan Cosette. Uh, to own most of the porno shops in Portland. <laughs> and back in the late 60s and early 70s, the porno shops were like, you know, a really big deal. They were all over the place. Oh, yeah. They were all painted yellow. And uh, they all made huge amounts of money. And so he owned most of those. And I guess Tom invented the little machines where you put a quarter in, you get to see a little bit of a porno movie. Then if you want to keep seeing it, you put another quarter in. <laughs> And quarter after quarter after quarter, they made hundreds of thousands of dollars off these Genius. things. Genius. Yeah, <laughs> you know. And um, he was still making money off these porno films when uh, I went to work for him on Courier in 1984, early 1984. And at first I didn't know he owned these porno shops, but I'd signed a contract with him to work on it and do the music. And uh, what was his I was kind of locked into it. And then I found out about all this underworld stuff he's into. What was Tom's uh, interest in film? Why did he want to make a film? I guess he, that was like a hobby of his or something. He always wanted to get into it, and, and he made good money off the other jobs he was doing. And so when he had enough money, he bought an Eclair NPR camera, which is the exact same kind of 16-millimeter camera. Uh, cameraman shot uh, movies like Woodstock and Gimme Shelter and all kinds of documentary films, uh, the Monterey Pop Festival. You know, that was like the documentary camera to have. It's, it was made in France, and it's a synchronous camera that's designed to work with a, a special tape recorder called a, a Nagra. And both the camera and the Nagra have this crystal sync mechanism that makes them run exactly the speed that they record at. And they exactly match each other so that the soundtrack on one piece of film covered with iron oxide, like, you know, like recording tape, and the visual part of film would always synchronize up once you found the key frame. That's why people had a clapboard. Yep. All they had to do was find that one frame mm -hmm. and then everything else would be in sync except on Courier. <laughs> <laughs> when so, we, so there were some audio issues with Courier are you well, saying? See, are you suggesting? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I'm not suggesting it. I'm just flat out telling it. Uh, I'm revealing all this yeah, this uh, hidden stuff. So that, but we, but, and we will get to Courier because yeah. that's what, that's yeah. what I really want Sorry. to. So, so how did Tom Shaw find you? How did you find each other and it sounds like you were working on the making of the film and didn't just do the music afterwards. So how did you connect with Tom Shaw? Yeah, uh, there was maybe a core uh, core crew of maybe about five or six or seven people. And none of this was a union shoot where you just did your own craft. Right. Everybody did everything. You know, the, the, the film had two cinematographers and they both appeared in the film. And one of the cinematographers, John Henry Schmier, is the main bad guy yeah. behind all the bad things that happen in the film. His name is Bigelow in the film. Yeah. And he's this real hammy actor, but he's very good. And he also had cinematography skills. And I met him as a projectionist at a local theater near where I used to live when I was a kid. He was a projectionist there, kind of like Cinema, Cinema Paradiso yeah. for yeah. real. So I knew him for just decades. And then we wound up working on Courier together. Um, backtracking a little bit, uh, so Tom Shaw moved to Portland and he bought this little corner grocery store on the corner of 75th and Division, 7500 Southeast Division. And he uh, boarded up all the windows and remodeled it inside and out and turned it into a little miniature movie studio. And he had this one big room that was the movie studio and he had a secret door that would come up off the floor in a basement 
where he stored all his, uh, I guess, sex toys and tapes <laughs> that he sold. But he also stored all his films and stuff down there, too. Right. And I guess the first thing he tried to do was shoot some porno films of his own and uh, direct. And he just never, he didn't know how to direct. Plus, he was a, 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 a just a continuous alcoholic drinking vodka sevens and beer all Recipe day. Recipe for success. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was never a time when he wasn't drinking one or the other or both, except when he was sleeping. And if he could have rigged up something to drink it then, he would have. <laughs> and... Um, so he, his judgment was pretty impaired, and he was inebriated all the time. And so those little porno films he shot, I don't know whether he's trying to make a whole movie or just shorts or what, but uh, I saw them once, and they were pretty disjointed, and the right. editing was just a mess. And it's like, <laughs> they didn't even work as porno films. And, and so, you, know, I mean, how, you had one job. You had how, one job. How bad do you have to be to not be able to make a porno film? You know, just hold the camera still. So did he... <laughs> As as he's assembling his teams to do, because he 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 did try to make a couple other movies that he didn't finish. How did he get people to work with him if if people kind of knew yeah. that he wasn't maybe going to pay them or know yeah. well not drunk or whatever? Word got out to all the film schools, probably the one I went to and the Northwest Film and Video Center, that he had this little miniature movie studio, and if you wanted to come use some sixteen millimeter pretty high quality 16 millimeter equipment and learn how to make a movie and have hands-on experience for free you didn't have to pay you know any money for these classes you'd be making a film for him for free and it seemed like a nice you know win-win yeah barter deal and so uh after he gave up on the porno film some of which he tried to shoot in his backyard his neighbors complained I've got an interview with one of the, an old lady who was one of the neighbors who was complaining and she right. called the cops and she tells me that story. A friend of mine named Jim Lowry who knew Tom Shaw uh, interviewed her and, and filmed that one. Um, uh, so he gave up on the porno film. So we started hiring people, hiring in quotes, uh, to make a little short film called Brats on the Mountain. This lasts about 20 minutes or so. And it's about two bad guys who kidnap these kids and they they hold them up in some little log cabin in the woods somewhere. And the kids wind up being so obnoxious that the, the thugs just, please go, just get, go get away, get out of here. And it was kind of like that Home Alone movie, except sure. it was made long before the Home say, Alone that's, movie. Yeah. yeah, precursor. Yeah, exactly. So, now uh, we know where Christopher Columbus and John Hughes get their ideas from. <laughs> <laughs> um, Adrian... Oh, God, who was that guy with the big nose who kissed Halle Berry at the Oscars? Uh, Adrian Brody? Yeah, it, Brody. He was going to make a remake of Courier for a while. Really? <laughs> yeah, so yeah, yeah, Knowingly or <laughs> well, like he knows of this movie? Well, the, I read in the trades, that uh, <laughs> the L.A. Hollywood trades, that this movie called The Courier was uh, in development or something like that, early production or something like that. I sent an email to him saying, oh, you might want to see this movie of courier that sounds real similar to yours right and then suddenly it wasn't suddenly on it's anymore it's anymore. like oh maybe they were worried about getting sued <laughs> i wouldn't sue anybody i just thought it'd be fun i thought maybe they could release the earlier version of yes. courier along with their version <laughs> double you know. feature yeah so um the couriers the, the couriers yeah and the film was originally entitled just courier mm-hmm. the of death was added by the distributor Makes okay. sense. That Tom, yeah, yeah, yeah. That oh, it's, Tom, it's great. Yeah, that Tom Shaw signed a deal. That's a with. great punch up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a Patton Oswalt punch up right there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Patton Oswalt. <laughs> I love him. Um, he was great on uh, um, 
that Reno 911 series. <laughs> Love that. Um, so, so it sounds like yeah. So, all we, at- so he actually got that film finished. Okay. And the guy who did the documentary called Remembering Tom Shaw years later worked on that Brats on the Mountain. Okay. Oh. Okay. And then Tom decided, okay, he's ready to make a feature-length film, and it was going to be a comedy. So he got a lot of local actors, and some of the actors got paid because uh, they weren't, you know, interested in making the film. They right. appeared in it. Right. And um, and by the way, all his films have something to do with a kidnapping. I noticed that pattern, and you know, except the pornos. <laughs> and um, maybe even then. Yeah, you know, so he's obsessed with kidnaps, I guess. Um, and uh, so it was called The Great Oregon Kidnap Caper. And uh, it, a lot of the film was shot. Maybe all of the film was shot as far as he was concerned. It was done as far as he was concerned. But the script was a little convoluted. Uh, Dan Yost wrote the script, and it, I have a copy of it. And it was an, a comprehensible story. But by the time the film got made, so much of it had been jumbled up that the story was totally incomprehensible. You had no idea what how one scene related to the next. and. And it had kind of a, a light comedy tone to the whole thing. And there was some kind of fun visual stuff happening in it, but it just didn't have a story that made any sense. And it had no post-production. There was no music soundtrack. There was no dubbing. There was no EDR dialogue replacement. Um, was it ever released? Well, he was going to, but I guess... Uh, oh, and he brought Monty Python's uh, editor who had edited the TV series all the way over from so how England. Did, that's that's a connection because I, I we mentioned that in our in our episode that I, and I kind of forgotten about that. Now how did that connection? Well, happen? I don't know because I didn't work on Kidnap Caper. Okay, okay. I learned so all that this, was not for Courier of Death. That was for Kidnap that Caper. This was all for Kidnap Caper, okay. and and I learned all this later when I chanced upon people who had worked on okay. Kidnap Caper, like a local filmmaker Don Dapp and a couple local actors and some other local people who had worked on that. Plus, there was a big article in Willamette Week, a big cover story about that movie, like it was about to be finished and it's right. going to appear in hmm. theaters and stuff. And and uh, there were seven articles written about Tom Shaw over the decades, and I happened to have all seven of them. Is that yeah. the, the documentary that we ended up watching on the Internet way back Remembering this year? Remembering Tom Shaw. Is there... Any other copies of that? Anyway, I'd love to get that on YouTube because the way it's almost impossible to find and right. it only exists as that tiny, tiny real player window well, thing that's terrible. I have a copy of it on DVD. Oh. And uh, just today I emailed the guy who made it. I'm talking with him. I'll oh, nice. Give, I'll give you his email address and you can talk to him. Yeah, I would love to get that and, so people and, can see it because yeah, it's great. Yeah, it and great. he might still have some copies. If he doesn't, with his okay, I, I can make you a copy. Right. Cool. Yeah, no, yeah, that would be great. You know, and we'll probably, you know, get his okay to post it properly sure, on right. YouTube. And yeah, stuff. with yep. credited. Yeah. But yeah, that's a, that was a great little documentary. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so it sounds yeah. like then Tom accumulated this nice equipment and the film community just kind of came to him to use it. Like what other, I know there's uh, some yeah. other notable films that maybe use Tom Tom's equipment. Well, yeah, that's another thing that attracted people is Tom was willing to loan out his equipment to other people so they can make their short films and later loaned their his equipment out to people for extended periods of time so they can make feature length movies. Yeah, well, Fatal Revenge uh, was made using Tom Shaw's equipment. Yep, another another uh, local uh, action movie that was a, a clone of Courier. Uh, was uh, shot by um, Jim Lawray and um, uh, Phil Roth, who later became pretty famous as a director on the Sci-Fi Channel. Yep. Yeah, 
and is still making movies in Romania of yes, all places like now. He makes like ten movies a year. Yeah. Speaking of yeah. speaking of pornography, his output <laughs> may as well be with that much. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's a pretty basic filmmaker, shall we say? Yeah. Um, and makes, makes the money. Yeah, it works. Yep. You know. Uh, he's found his mar- market niche, and it works for him. So there you go. So what was the rip off? The uh, the, the the clone movie was yeah. called uh, Bad Trip. I believe okay, yeah, was. that is on our list. Yeah, and um, that was made by a company called Motion Pictures International. And Jim, local filmmaker Jim Lowry, who still lives in Portland, uh, and Phil set up this little company to make this film. Borrowed Tom's equipment and made it, and then made their own distribution deal, basically following in Tom's footsteps. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were going to make another movie. I think I think they were going to be involved in Fatal Revenge, but then they didn't like the deal that that distributor or financier was offering, and so they parted company. and And that film was made independent of of uh, Jim and Phil. And uh, so, it, but it did get made. And um, uh, so Penny Allen borrowed his, Tom's equipment to make her f- first feature film. Gus Van Zandt had been borrowing. Uh, um, Tom's equipment to make his short films and he used to hang out with us on Courier once in a while he'd come and hang out at the studio occasionally come with us uh, to uh, shoots and just hang out and watch a shoot uh, he found some of the locations for us and came out there and and um, so we we all knew Gus pretty well and this is all before he got famous or even before he made Malanoche hmm. and so he made, he made Malanoche right after Courier when all that equipment was available and then the rest is history for Gus right. yeah, so um, so, uh, and he, yeah, he just loaned his equipment. Sometimes he loaned out so much equipment, we didn't have enough of it to work on Courier. <laughs> we didn't have enough, we didn't have enough lights. And so we wound up buying little, you know, little scoop lights like you find in a hardware store right. that were pretty inaccurate and the wrong color temperature. Right. And, and we'd have to shoot the wide open with the lens, you know, full exposure and push the development twice in the <laughs> lab, which made the film extremely grainy. You know, so the technical quality of the film is pretty weak. Right. Although we did notice, I like I said, I kind of re-listened to the episode, having really forgotten everything that we said about it. And I think we all noted that it wasn't an... Uh, it wasn't a, a badly made movie, technically, in a lot of ways, but badly directed and put together and all that stuff kind of ruined the technical ability that could have happened. And it sounds like yeah. you and the rest of the crew tried to cobble this nonsense together in in many different ways yeah but both technically and aesthetically uh the say there's there's two or three real key saviors of this film otherwise the film wouldn't just wouldn't have been made it would have been another oregon kidnap caper that was just right. shelved um and uh, by the way e- for kidnap caper even monty python's editor who came all the way from England how he made that connection I don't know but he, his name was Ray Millichope he came over and tried to save Kidnap Caper and even he couldn't do it you know with all the talent he had a, a man so whose the, job is to make the absurd <laughs> could not make sense of the absurd that he was faced yeah. with uh, well there's a difference between absurd and incomprehensible yes, that's true yeah, yeah, that's true know. so anyway he went back to England but I I got a hold of him eventually and talked to him and um so that film was shelved, and it was kind of everybody was kind of disappointed. He made VHS copies for for the crew and stuff. Do you have a copy? Uh, I um, uh, all all of them lost their copies eventually, and uh, but Tom still had uh, Ron Schmidt, uh, who's one of the saviors of Courier, and I'll talk about him in a minute. Um, took a shot at trying to edit 
kidnap Caper himself to see if he could he could save it. He kind of liked the challenge. And he made it a little bit better, but it was still pretty incomprehensible for lack of a lot of bridging scenes. And so, but he had this work print, 60 millimeter work print that he used. And it had splices and dust and dirt and stuff on it. And since that was the only available copy of the film available, Tom had that transferred to um, a digital master uh, at Technofilm. And so... Uh, the Courier crew got copies of that, or who, the, the ones who wanted one. So I got a copy of that on VHS. And I think that copy of the work print of that edit of the film is the only one that exists now. And um, As still film or on VHS? Uh, on VHS. Well, yeah, on VHS. Okay, so the film stock probably doesn't exist anymore. I know it doesn't. Okay. Um, when Tom, so there's no 4K restoration of Courier of Death in our <laughs> no, that's, future. No, that's not going to happen. <laughs> um, when Tom eventually moved out of that studio, uh, he simply just threw away all those elements for all his films. Man, wow. Yeah, they just got taught. and all photo, you know, uh, production photos, publicity photos, just everything that was you know scripts, notes, and stuff. Wow. The only thing that got saved was the stuff I saved and took to my house, like the uh, the music elements and the uh, scripts and. And, yeah, you have you know, in front of us your notes from making the film neatly compiled yeah. in a binder. Yeah, I have, I, had a, I have my brown binder here. And this was, this was my Bible during the making of the film because all of us did everything on that film. I even made a, a list of all the different things I did on it. And there's actually 36 different tasks or, you know, uh, things that I did on the film, everything from you know, a production coordinator and cleaning the camera gate every day and recharging batteries to occasionally direct, directing, you know, second unit scenes. You know, a lot of people took turns uh, directing second unit scenes, which is about half the film. Mm. And uh, the guy I started to mention uh, who really saved the film was Ron Schmidt. And he, uh, he was the head editor and he was effectively uh, uh, the director, the de facto director, and he will never admit to it because the film is kind of misanthropic against women, and that's the exact opposite of Ron's gentle, sweet personality. So whenever when anyone says, "I think you might have directed some scenes," he goes, "No, no I don't. <laughs> I don't. I don't treat women like that. I, I don't. Want, no, no, no. Yeah. You know. He, and so, uh, but you know, I directed a few t- scenes that where there's just nobody else to figure it out, and so did Dwight Lay, so did John Schmier. Um, so on the DVD version that I'm trying to restore <laughs> from a VHS tape, right. which is a challenge in and of itself, Yes, um, I'm going to revise the credits and give everybody uh, associate director credits. Or, oh, there you go. That's or, a good or, idea. Or sequence director or something. You know? Right. That's uh, a good idea. Yeah. Uh, something that won't uh, upset any of the union crafts down in L.A. Right. Right. <laughs> So, um, well, I wanted to play, I think I might've solved my, my audio issue here. So I wanted to play a little bit of the music, which is something that we haven't talked about yet. Another thing that we mentioned in our podcast is that our favorite thing about this was the music. Um, so I wanted to play a little bit here of, of that music and no, that wasn't the problem. Do you have a favorite? Oh dear. Oh dear. Sorry. Can you still hear me?
So that's a little sample of the music, not from Stranger Things, yeah, but right? that is that is your music from Courier of Death, which yes. could almost be a carbon copy. So all of this, it's been interesting to see how things are looping around and, and people are going back to this this synth 80s, 80s stuff that you were yeah. in the thick of. Well, in the early 70s, I saved up and bought a mini Moog synthesizer, and there was very few people in Portland who had one. And suddenly, a lot of people were interested in, in hiring someone who had one of those to make, like, logos and jingles. And it was the latest really cool sound, yeah. you know. And, you know, synth tunes had been coming out for a few years. And uh, the Minotaur by Dick Hyman had become, was a big instrumental hit in 1967. And, and uh, so local radio stations, I started hooking up with them. And they would hire me to make little logos and jingles and news blips and, uh, you know, just anything. And uh, word got out to other stations. I wanted to work in for stations in Seattle and San Francisco and L.A. and even one in Alaska mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Dallas, Oregon, Eugene, Oregon, and uh, <laughs> made friends with a lot of these program directors and music directors at these radio stations. Most of them were Gene Autry's Golden West chain of stations. Oh, funny. Yeah. like K- And KEX was the station here in Portland. Oh, sure. Oh. And the program director was Victor Ives. And uh, the, one of the top DJs besides Victor was Jim Hollister. And the two of them hosted a uh, monster host, monster movie host show on KATU, um, uh, Channel 2 yeah. television on Saturday nights called Sinister Cinema. Ooh, that's cool. Uh-huh. Yeah, which they used to slate as Sinister Enema. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and one day the slate got broadcast. Oh, no. And, and, people, and people called in saying, that's great, you ought to change it to that. <laughs> Anyway, I wound up working on that, too, doing teleprompters and research and stuff like that. I got to know Victor and, and Jim. And um, so I had that circle of friends going on. And so I kind of semi-made a living along with other regular day jobs and survived doing those little synthesizer things. And I just composed a lot of my own little tunes on that, too. I got a hold of a, uh, a stereo and then a quadraphonic tape deck, and I was able to sort of do like George Martin did with the Beatles, and I'd record a few tracks and then bounce it to another one and then add three more and bounce it to that and eventually have a multi-track thing. And um, uh, so I and I saved all these little tunes and things I did. And so I'd gotten pretty good at that by the time I got to Courier, and so I used that synthesizer plus a couple other synthesizers I borrowed from friends and uh, in a period of two weeks came up with all this music as fast and frantically as I could after I got done doing all the other stuff mm-hmm. on Courier that I was doing. And um, and at the same time, I'm working on all the, like a thousand sound effects and room ambiences and mm-hmm. stuff that you can't hear at all on the VHS copy. In <laughs> uh, all this all this professional stuff that I learned how to do and yeah. applied to Courier is invisible or inaudible on the film because yeah, that's a shame. You know, the VHS r- copies weren't even hi-fi stereo. Yeah, you know, so you lost all the high frequency response. Which is crazy. I yeah. found a copy of that at the bi- at the Goodwill outlet bins just out of the blue. It just showed up in there. And I was like, it was like the holy grail. I was like, are you kidding me? This beautiful, pristine copy of Courier of Death. Was that before or after we saw it? It was after we saw it, yeah, I'm pretty sure. I remember that. Yeah. How, it was how, very how, how, how much did Goodwill sold you for that? Uh, well, they at the Goodwill outlet bins, they charge by the pound. And usually VHS <laughs> tapes uh, are about a dollar still. So it's not any cheaper than the regular Goodwill. But well, the selection is much better. The way Courier turned out, that's about the right price. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um, um, but, you know, due to Ron Schmidt, what uh, what we would do is, is wait for Tom. Tom Shaw took a big, long nap every afternoon. 
after lunch. And so that's when we would go out and shoot all these bridging scenes with Ron or one of us directing to bridge two other scenes that Tom had come up with that made no sense to each other. So Ron would figure out a bridging sequence, write some script, uh, and then we'd go out and shoot that. And then finally, this scene would make a little bit of sense and evolve into the next scene. And you knew why people were doing something. And so the film was pieced together like that, so at least there's a comprehensible story in it. It's no great masterpiece of storytelling. It's really just kind of like a remake of uh, um, Charles Bronson's Death Wish. Yeah. You know, uh, which Tom had seen, and he was influenced by. Okay. You know, so... um, so the people who are actors in the film, were they mostly friends or are they, they well, were tryouts or? Well, they were friends, but they were all local actors doing sure. local live theater. Okay. And uh, Tom hired them and paid most of them, I think, for, mm-hmm. uh, uh, to appear in the film. And uh, they, were, they, were, they were professional actors and they were talented. Mm-hmm. And some weren't actors, but they learned how to act sure. on this film. And uh, uh, Ron Schmidt was really good at directing them and getting a good performance out of the non-actors. Uh, for example, beautiful uh, Barbara uh, Garrison, I think her, that was her name the last time, who plays the blonde mm-hmm. in the film. Her name is Barbara Niven now, and she's got a professional modeling studio or something in another town. Um, uh, wasn't an actress. She was a model. But she wanted to be in the film, and she really looked great. The distributor says, hire beautiful people. (laughs) Your lead actor should be working out and have some muscle on him, and and your women should be good-looking women. Uh, And so Tom did. And uh, all the women in the film were really good-looking. And there was a lot of women working on the crew, too. Um, Like uh, on the the Courier publicity poster where... um, uh, Joey Johnson, uh, uh, as uh, J.D. Blackman, is holding the dead body of his wife. The actress who played his wife was not available the day we shot that poster. So the gal who played Annie in the film uh, was the dead body. But she was also the assistant cinematographer, and she did a whole lot of other functions on wow. the film. And uh, uh, Brian is holding up the, the cover of the Courier of Death soundtrack, which is amazing. Yeah. And it matches your scary stories shirt. Oh, funny. <laughs> and I want that as a shirt, that image <laughs> on the front of Courier of Death, the Courier of Death uh, soundtrack, which that would is be great. super nicely packaged. And I listened to I, I drove uh, today this morning. I was in eastern Washington and and it was about a three and a half hour trip back and. Um, long story short, my, my brother and sister-in-law and the, my four nieces who have lived, uh, in this town close for the last 25 years, they're moving away. And so it was like this big emotional thing. And then it started raining and it never rains in Eastern Washington. And so I get on the road, I'm just like going through all these emotions and I just put on this soundtrack and it was so neat and surreal, just like driving through the middle of nowhere in Eastern Washington and it's raining and it's like, I'm all emotionally fraught. It was, it was really fun, fun way to experience that. But um, yeah, the album is great and available. I believe at CD baby, isn't it? It's at CD baby. There's some copies on Amazon and eBay floating around. And I have a few copies for sale if anybody can find me (laughs) and uh, I don't have any websites or anything, but I do have an active email address. And yes, well, and you're featured prominently in the Amazon review section for courier of death. 
death. Okay. Which so is, there you go. Uh, yeah, you give a lot of good background <laughs> information in that review, I remember. Yeah. And I think I put my email address at the time in there. And at yeah, the time. You did it, correct it. Yeah, I did correct it. You yeah. did correct it, okay, yes, because so you came back and said that you had a new email address. Okay, I so, that, so, that. so that corrected one is still my email address. Okay, so you great. can get a hold of me. Yeah, great. You know, well, you and there is not just a fan base for this movie in this room. Uh, it was featured, I, I don't know what year, but David Walker, uh, uh, bringing him uh, uh, once again, but did a screening with this and Fatal Revenge at some point. At the so, Hollywood Theater? Uh, um, yeah, probably. Yeah. Yes, yes, I was there. Okay, oh, nice. So you were able to be involved with that. Now, mm-hmm. what is it like? Did, was there, so when you guys finished kind of cobbling this experience and, and, and footage together, is Tom still kind of not leading the charge, but like, is he saying, okay, it's finished now? Was there a premiere for this? Like, how did this all end? Well, see, Tom, Tom just wanted to make money off this thing. Sure. He was anxious for it to just be done so okay. he could make his deal and sell it. And um, the problem was the film wasn't done. Mm-hmm. And Ron, Ron Schmidt kept saying, no, we need this sequence. We need that sequence. This part, this doesn't make any sense here. Well, and people you weren't know. available to come back to do their Well, that, their was another, that was another thing because a lot of people who were working for free uh, or who were underpaid weren't always available. Right. And one actor who played uh, the kidnapper in the film, John Benneth, decided to, he didn't like Tom Shaw, he decided, and so he, tied, he decided to not only screw over Tom Shaw, but he, inedi- he uh, invariably screwed over the entire crew by refusing to appear for his final key scene, the climax of the film. <laughs> and, and so now we had to shut down production for a couple of months, and Tom and Ron uh, got their heads together and rewrote about half the film and introduced a new character named Carver, and we found this great actor who was also a great crew member named Mel Fletcher. Uh, and it was uh, his daughter who appears as a little girl at the very end of the yeah, film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. The family. Yeah. And uh, he effectively saved the film. Not only was he a good actor, but he knew a lot of technical stuff, and he was able to get a lot of technical things done and help out with the dubbing of the film. And, and he found actors to dub the voices he found another actor to do John Bennett's voice, who sounded like him. Yeah. And he found, uh, you know, Tom Shaw himself plays the pilot in the film, but Tom hated his voice, and so he wanted that dub too. So we found uh, an actor to come in and uh, dub his voice, who, who was real good too. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of good acting talent in Portland and Oregon. Oh, and yeah. There was then and there is now. It's same thing with the music in Portland. The, the amount of talent in Portland is just stunning. Yeah. And uh, we had no trouble finding talented people to work on Courier. It was just Tom, (laughs) (laughs) you know, kind of sabotaging his own film all the time. Right. And and it's... and we had to put up with it because he's the one, he owns the studio, he owns all the equipment, and he's the one who's going to slap his name on it as writer, producer, director, because mm-hmm. that's what he always wanted to do. And so if we wanted to get this movie done and maybe get paid by a few points or something like that, whatever contracts we signed, uh, we had to get the film done and to a point where it had a comprehensible story so that a distributor would want to make a deal. And so Tom would always be saying, oh, yeah, that's it, it's done. And we, no, it's not. We, we'd have to, <laughs> another week would go by. We'd schedule some more pickup shots, and so this went on for the last couple of months. Then Tom did find a distributor, brand new little company formed down in L.A. called Cinetel, uh, run by two uh, attractive people, Lisa Hansen, and uh, oh god, I can't think of the other guy's name right now. But anyway, um, 
So they came up and met Tom, and they signed a, a distribution deal as production agents. And what a production agent is, is they will take a little local film, and they'll take possession of it, and they'll pay the filmmaker X amount of money. And then they will turn around and sell the film to each different country mm. around the world. And by the way, this film was not made for theaters. None of Tom Shaw's films were made for theaters. These were all made for video okay. only. So Curry, uh, Kidnap Caper... Uh, Kidnap Caper was supposed to be in theaters, but that didn't work out. But Courier was definitely intended to be for VHS video, and a film he made later on, one more, called Take No Prisoners, which the crew called Take No Paycheck. Um, uh, <laughs> was, was that one never finished? That was finished, oh, and, that's, okay. and that's available on DVD, too. Take, okay. take No Prisoners, and you can find it on Amazon. I and imagine we have that on our list. Were, were you at all involved in the, that uh, movie? No, I wasn't, but Ron Schmidt was. Hmm. And there's a local actor named Jim Jamison, who was actually a professional actor who was, belonged to the Screen Actors Guild down in L.A., who moved up to Portland. And he's in all the films. You know? hmm. And, and uh, there's a few other key people who were in all the films. And, uh, and their names escape me unless I start opening my, my, <laughs> my notes here. But this movie did find a fan base. Like you said, we're holding the soundtrack, which was, is just beautifully packaged, I think, for yeah. And so, tell us about tell us about the the cult status of this around the world. Yeah. So by by the end of 1984, my work on the film was done, and I moved on and got other work. But the production agents wanted additional pickup scenes, so there was another six months before the film was finished to their satisfaction. And there was some gore in the film they wanted cut cut out. Mm. Because this is going to be on VHS and the kids could rent this thing. So we, Tom Shaw had to pull back on some of the misanthropic stuff he had in the <laughs> film. And, uh, but he, he finally got it to their satisfaction, so they signed the deal. Later on in a TV interview during the making of his next film, he stated on camera that he paid, uh, it cost him $60,000 to make Courier and that he sold it for a quarter million to these distributors. So he made a profit. And I was supposed to get 12% of that, but that never happened. <laughs> That's a whole other story. <laughs> and uh, so I just went on my way, my merry way. So fast forward a couple decades, and, and I'm suddenly contacted by this guy in Scotland named Matthew Aldworth. He's, he's in Glasgow, Scotland. And he and his, his collection of, I don't know, maybe about a dozen friends had found their copy of Courier, and they would watch, they would get drunk, I guess, on Saturday nights and watch Courier and, and verbally make fun of it, just like a Mystery Science Theater 3000. Yeah. <laughs> and it, beca- it became kind of like their, their film, their thing that they did over and over and over again that kind of bonded them together. And Matthew was in charge of all this. Maybe he was the one who owned the film, you know, the copy of the film. So Matthew finally found me and contacted me, and so... Uh, we started sending emails back and forth, and we started talking about him putting out a soundtrack. He wanted to start a record company called Courier of Death Records. It's you know? amazing. It's very w- specific. Which kind of made me nervous because rap and hip-hop, or especially you know gangster rap and stuff, was real happening a lot right. back then. Right, didn't want to confuse the audience with like, your well, synth track. Well, well, Courier of Death, you just look at the front or the name of the record company, it sounds like it's going to be a rap company. Right. you know. But anyway, so he formed the company. I wanted to call it just COD Records, and um, uh, the uh, so he put out this uh, CD soundtrack, and you know I've, I had all, I still had all my tapes, and so I restored them and made digital masters and sent it to him, and so he made this CD. Uh, after I left, there was another quote composer unquote named Dan Snodgrass, who was hired to do a couple little fill bridging 
pieces of music that these new scenes needed. And I wasn't involved in that. But he had lost all his masters. Mm-hmm. And so even though I, I uh, got a hold of him, he had, didn't have his masters anymore. And uh, Matthew Aldworth wanted to include those on the CD too. So I got the sole credit for it. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so he, uh, he's put this out and it's available. And uh, he and I have just continued talking back and forth uh, over the years and the decades. Um, and uh, it's kind of amazing is that the Courier and Tom Shaw or me or the soundtrack has an actual fan club in Scotland. Yeah, of all that's places. crazy. And it's, you know, with the Internet making these kind of connections possible, it just just goes to show how people of like minds can yeah. find each well, other. Well, I feel like this is distances. this is the type of movie movie that's just waiting to be discovered by the audience that I know will really like it, which is out there yeah. strongly, and it's just like trying to flag them down and and give this to, to them as the gift that it is. I mean, our hands are tied with this show in terms of the t- uh, breadth of movies that we can watch because they have to be filmed in Portland. But I feel like with this one, we actually did find something the worth sharing outside want. of yeah, this Portland totally. film community. It, def- it definitely has its Mystery Science Theater 3000 kit. <laughs> yes. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I contacted Mystery Science Theater 3000 uh, when they were on the Comedy Channel yeah, and I said I got a film for you, <laughs> and I said how much you pay? Five grand. They said, okay, well, be nice to make five grand. Sure. But Tom was still alive then; he still owned the rights to the film then. Oh. And so I went to Tom and said, hey, you want to make twenty five hundred dollars for doing <laughs> yeah. absolutely nothing? Yeah. And I and so I explained it to him. And I told I showed him a little bit of a Mystery Science Theater three thousand episode. I said these guys will pay you twenty five hundred dollars to do this to your career film. But you know, Tom didn't want his masterpiece being you know, belittled like wow. that. You know, so he so turned it down. So I couldn't get my he, half. Did he think? Did he think with his projects that he was creating something good, or did he know he's just getting product out? Because that makes it sound like I will sell out the integrity of my art. Well, what Tom said when we were actually all done and the final VHS copies arrived for us to have. And, w- and we watched it, uh, Tom said, well, it ain't as good as I wanted it to be, but it's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's okay. That should be the <laughs> box quote. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It ain't as good, yeah, yeah, ain't ain't as, good as I wanted it It to ain't be. as good as I wanted it and to just, be, but it's kind of sort of pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> to get an idea, we did play this in our other show, but... Um, uh, an example of which is a shame they didn't use his voice in the movie because here is uh, Tom Shaw's voice. He's, on, he's so on, good. He's yeah. at the beginning of the soundtrack. I don't yeah. Know. Yeah. He delivers bonds. He is the courier. They thought he could be taken. They killed his best friend. Anyway, so he's got a he's got a uh, a great voice in that in that little trailer, which is also on the soundtrack. Yeah, so. uh, we made about three or four trailers for for Courier, and I wanted to take my shot at making a, cra- a trailer and doing some editing too. After I got a hold of uh, uh, some editing equipment uh, at Portland Cable Access, and so um, uh, I talked Tom into recording those lines and uh, made my own little 
soundtrack. Yeah, yeah, that's and, great. And uh, that trailer never got shown or released. And or it always bugged me because it always bugged me. Yeah. All the times I've known about that uh, is that he says the courier, but never the courier of, of death. Which probably makes because, sense it, because wasn't, it wasn't yeah. named that. Yeah, it just, yeah, it hadn't been changed yet. And I love the way he, at the end he goes the. Career. Yeah, you know. he's got like <laughs> what they said the job of the hut voice. Yeah, which. yeah. As a matter of fact, we called him Job of the Hut behind his back. You know, so <laughs> John Schmier came up with that cinematographer John Schmier. I have a question. Tom Shaw, he was actually uh, he played the pilot in the movie, but he was actually a pilot too, and he was he really flew the plane. That airplane in the movie is his plane, and he had it in storage at Evergreen that Airport. Just looked so dangerous. We had hypothesized that it was shot from a helicopter. And then sped up just because it was so much vertical movement and it was like it was so unlike a flight path of an airplane because there's one point where it just nose dives like from the top of Multnomah Falls like onto I-84 and then just cuts and I was like did they crash it looked terrifying <laughs> but he rigged a bolex up to the wing of the plane apparently yeah he rigged up a, a bolex uh, camera which I just the, I found an yeah. almost new bolex camera at the bins by the way yeah but wow. it was heavier than crap and I'm like I don't I can't afford this right now yeah <laughs> um, I own Will Vinton's bolex camera that shot closed Mondays <laughs> I bought so. that from him when he when he switched to a 35 millimeter wow uh, so I still have that uh, and I shot animation on that of my own uh, so uh, Tom flew this little Piper plane, I think it was, it's called a Piper, and he, uh, he had the camera mounted on one wing and a counterweight on the other wing, and there was a cable going into the cockpit, and you just push a button and the film would roll on the camera, and you push it again, it would stop rolling. And it was a spring-loaded camera, so you could only shoot, you know, like 30 uh, seconds or a minute or something like that, uh, you know, footage. Yeah. Then you'd have to land, wind it up again, and go up <laughs> again, you know. And, but usually a minute was enough footage. Yeah. You know? But he, he did that several times. Ron Schmidt went with him, and he loved to do this little trick on his plane where he would pretend to have a heart attack and go into a dive. <laughs> nice. And scare the crap out of the... <laughs> The guy Classic. riding with him. Then he'd recover at the last minute, you know, and the guy riding with him was, yeah. you know. Well, that's certainly what it looked like in the film, which is yeah. why we thought it was a helicopter. So I'm guessing that's what he did for that one shot. Yeah. I, I heard about this story from Ron Schmidt early on, so I refused to go up. Yeah, him. well, considering how much he apparently yeah. drank all the time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, at one point, I had to record the sound of the, the propeller on his airplane. And I needed him to have it at one speed and then step on the accelerator so it would go up to another speed so I could put that on the soundtrack when the plane is taking off. And I reversed that sound for when he was landing. Well, when you step on the accelerator, I'm standing in front of the plane, maybe about, you know, three feet beyond the propeller to get a nice clean sound, nice loud clean sound. So when he steps on the accelerator, the plane starts moving toward me while I instinctively move back. But Ron Schmidt is sitting in the plane, and he goes, oh, God, we're going to cut up. He's going to Raiders of the Lost Ark you into, <laughs> into the next world. But I didn't get cut up. I'm okay. And uh, I got my uh, good propeller sound. So, um, nice. Yeah. So nice. The, but that, that's what sound guys do. They go out in the field, and they record all these sound effects. Oh, and, yeah. You know, and I did, a lot, I did all the sound effects on that film, except uh, there were other people helping me out, too. The gal who played Annie, for example, uh, we bought a watermelon, brought it to my recording studio in the basement of my house, 
and we recorded stabbing the watermelon <laughs> to simulate uh, Nancy stabbing the bad guys who had been torturing her, <laughs> right. wow. which you can't hear anymore on the VHS tape. You know, all the subtle stuff was done. Yeah, that's a bummer. Yeah. Um, the interesting thing about listening to your stories, like I said uh, earlier this week, we, we went over and, and, and talked with you for about an hour or so, is that the, the names that suddenly appear in your story uh, your stories about oh and then I, uh, I bought Will Vinton's camera and and you had all these stories George Lucas and then you showed us pictures of you with the Death Star model for for Star Wars and there is a story that you've hinted at in your email that I'm very interested in and and that involves <laughs> uh, Madonna and body of evidence okay well you know I would try to do anything that was involved in the film industry sure. in Portland and during the 80s there was a lot of like L.A. Union shoots coming up making movies for cable channels and stuff the USA Network in particular. Uh, and Madonna came up uh, making her movie, Body of Evidence, in 1986, I think it was. 93. 93? Okay, yeah. all right. I mean, what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I'm getting my years wrong. Um, I'm, I'm getting old now. What, what, Todd, what Todd is not telling you is that he is one of the world's largest Madonna fans. <laughs> yes. Oh, okay. And the formation of this podcast had to do with Halloween Town and Body of Evidence. And we're like, I bet you there's at least 10 movies that have been filled in Portland <laughs> besides those two. And then yeah. we stumbled into this, yeah. into all of this. Well, back in those days, uh, I was pretty slim and trim. And I'd been working out in gyms for quite a while. And I, I was kind of toned up pretty good i wasn't no, i was no arnold schwarzenegger but i, I kind of look like a uh, you know a um uh, olympic swimmer or something like that and so i look pretty good and so i signed up to be an extra in that film so i'm standing around and uh although the film had a union director it was really madonna controlling everything she was just a total control freak and she in order to be in the film in her contract she had approval of everything every little detail and uh, so she picked me to be in this restaurant scene, okay? And extras are supposed to bring a couple pairs of pants, a couple pairs of shirts, but she didn't like any of my clothes. So she authorized me to get uh, a couple hundred bucks and go to Nordstrom's and buy this particular kind of pants, a particular kind of knit style and brand and color. And so uh, during the lunch break, I went there, bought the pants, brought them back, handed them to the assistant director who handed them to... Uh, hire someone higher up uh, and then handed them to Madonna she inspects the pants inside and out makes sure it's the right label and the little tag on it and everything she approves the pants and somebody she you know she checks off the uh, her approval she's approved this pants so the pants are given to me and I go in a dressing room I put on those pants and then I'm in the restaurant crowd and I have yet to find myself you know <laughs> maybe I'm on the cutting room floor yeah. I don't know but um, at the end of the day I got to keep the pants and all the change from buying it nice <laughs> all right and the pants only cost about 30 bucks wow so I got paid by the extra company and that money but since she was right in my pants, <laughs> I can now safely say, truthfully say, Madonna has been in my pants. That is, that's pretty great. <laughs> Micromanaging an extra's pants. Yeah, can you believe that? And I, she was just... That's pretty on brand for Madonna, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I saw the movie and it was okay, but, and they made Portland look really good, you know. Yeah, yeah. So we've we've yet to, to uh, visit or revisit, if you're me, that film for this for this podcast yet but it is definitely in our future so yeah um, so um tom uh uh made this uh final movie of his uh, take no prisoners and he attempted to get funding for a whole bunch of other films after hmm. that but he just couldn't get funding and he shot a lot of test sequences and 
things like that and wrote scripts and things. And he spent about 10 years just not getting anything accomplished after that. Um, but uh, I had this interview of him with his fi- this financial information on tape, and I took it to his place, and I, said, and I played him the tape. And I said, okay, Tom, uh, I know how much Courier costs. I know how much you made. Uh, it's right out of your own lips. Uh, my contract says I get 12% of the net returns. That comes to about 22 grand. Where's my money? Well, I don't got it. I don't got it. Get us spent on the other movie. You know, you know, he, you know, he would. Just and then he faked a heart attack. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, he didn't do that. But he was a master at talking his way out of tight situations. His partner in the porno stores got sent to jail for cocaine trafficking oh, and served, you know, five years of hard time or something. He got out. Tom had used Dan Cosette's half of the money from the porno stores to make courier. And he and Cosette got out shortly after that. Came and confronted Tom. I don't know. And so uh, they split. They split. Comp- uh, they split uh, company. And what they did is they split the porno stores between the two of them. So Tom had some, and Dan had some. And that's how they worked that out. So he did the same thing with me when I come confronting him. Where's my money? Got a solo. Um, so I said, uh, and I knew he was going to do that. So I said, I, I got an idea, Tom. Here's how we can be even, Stephen, on that. Um, how about uh, the courier is all played out, and uh, Kidnap Caper was never released, and Brats on the Mountain was just a short film. How about you sign over all the rights to those films to me, and we'll call it even? And Tom says, Okay, all right, uh, write up a contract and I'll sign it. So I wrote up a one-page contract and came back the next day and he signed it, and I said, I own the rights to. Brats on the Mountain, Kidnap Caper, and The Courier. But the only copy I had was my little non-hi-fi stereo VHS copy because he'd thrown away all the elements already, you know. And uh, Joey Johnson got some of the elements, but he got in some kind of fight with a girlfriend, and so she threw away all the elements on him. Uh. And so there was just no decent quality copies of anything Mm -hmm. of Courier. So now I'm trying to restore the film to release on DVD, create a stereo soundtrack, and also create an altered alternative parody soundtrack. <laughs> it's going to be the first film with its own parody soundtrack. <laughs> <That's awesome>. um, <laughs> and uh, and I showed a, a yeah, section of that to you guys cool. here, uh, which we can't broadcast for technical reasons, yes. unfortunately. But anyway, um, I'll post it on YouTube so that people can find there it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's also nice to finally see who's copyright I'm violating by putting Curlier of Death on the Portland at the Movies channel. Yeah. But that only has 24 views. Yeah. So. Now, now, see, here's something else I'm concerned about, too. Matthew Aldworth brought up this, this potential problem. Is I never saw the contract he signed with the distributors of the film, the production agents. Um, so uh, I think Ron mumbled something that they had the rights to it for seven years and then rights reverted back to Tom, in which case I'm fine. But if that's not true and they still own the rights, then I might act, might not actually be able to release it right. unless I make a deal with them. Right. So, you know, I'll, I'll have to, Paul Hurtberg is the guy, I remembered his name. Uh, I'll have to contact him and see if he even remembers the yeah. film. They used that, they used that as their flagship film to build their company. Oh, wow. And be able to produce 35 millimeter quality films for the Sci-Fi Channel. And they released a lot of their own films to video. And you'll see the Cinetel logo a lot on a lot of, uh, you know, um, lower budget films. Uh, but the technical quality of their films has gone up, and the filmmaking, the stories, and stuff have gotten pretty good over the years. Right. So they're still in business, as I understand it. And so I'll try and contact with them and see if I can find out what their contract says. And 
maybe get a copy of it if I can. They can YouTube flag me, and that will be the easiest way to find them. Yeah. And then one day you'll find DVD copies of Courier of Death <laughs> of the Bins. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah, for for a dollar. Those are no, those are two nineteen each. Yeah, <laughs> they well, charge separately for. Well, DVDs. actually, I, my copy, my version now, if I can release it, can be on Blu-ray now. Oh, there you, you know, go. and then maybe streaming or something. You know, and this will be one of the special features. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> interview with the composer. Yeah. I think you know, and I've been I've been working on this film off and on for I don't know what ten years or so, and it costs quite a bit of money to do this. So, and my cash flow is limited. Right. Uh, so it's very on again, off again kind of thing. And then I get hired to work on other projects, which right. takes time away from it. So it's a very kind of back burner thing that I get to every once in yeah, a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I found Jim Jamison. I had him record an audio track for me, and uh, pretended that JD. Uh, was listening to a, his phone machine, and I had an old cassette fo- phone machine from that same era, and so I had a I borrowed a gun from a gun collector friend and laid it by the phone machine, and you see this hand with a black leather jacket come in, turn on the machine, and there's this phone message from the colonel, telling mm-hmm. J.D. who has kidnapped Nancy, because how did J.D. find out? Well, okay, the colonel told him. On, told him on this phone machine. So Jim Jameson was the colonel? Yeah, yeah, Jim Jameson played the colonel. Okay. And uh, did a real good job, by the way. And he's in all of Tom Shaw's films. And um, so he lives way, way out in Hillsboro. It took me about like six months to find him. He's a Buddhist now. And uh, so I found him, and he's an extremely nice guy, still like he was when he, we worked on Courier. And uh, so he recorded this thing, this little soundtrack for me gratis, and I gave him a copy of Courier because he had never seen it or didn't have it. Oh, wow. It. Okay, so there was that. that's our little barter deal. Uh, and I think I gave him a copy of Take No Prisoner, too. And uh, so um, uh, so I, this is a new scene that I've actually created to insert into Courier. And so he finds out where Nancy is, and then it cuts to the scene in Courier where he's J.D. is you know, pack, packing himself up with oh, all yeah, his yeah. weapons and stuff. Then he goes on a hunt for all these people who are involved in the kidnapping, the murder of his wife and the kidnapping of his secretary. And that kidnapping of the secretary, I don't know whether you can run that or not, that was actually shot in Tom Shaw's studio, that scene, that whole sequence. Um, J.D. enters in through the back door of the little studio that Tom built. Right. And uh, J.D. walks down the main aisle, and you briefly see the lobby, and he glances into Tom Shaw's I feel like we said, office. I feel like we, 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 when we talked about that on the show, that we thought that was Tom Shaw's uh, studio, but that it looks too clean to be his studio. So maybe we were wrong <laughs> about that. Well, you know, what, what some of us were also on that was janitors just trying to keep the place say, clean. It didn't look I'm, gross enough for yeah, what I would picture yeah. his studio being like. Yeah. Well, it was actually pretty clean because, you know, we weren't shooting porno films anymore. Although, right, that's true. Although there was an awful lot of women coming in and out of there and uh, there was a lot of uh, rather uh, short relationships between the crew and these women showing up. <laughs> And oh, al- the 80s. Uh, yeah, and, and also between the women members of the crew and male members of the crew. There was, you know, that happened too. Uh, and uh, I sort of had my fun as well. So uh, that was one of the uh, um, uh, perks of working on that film, even if you weren't paid. Of yeah. go-go, Go-Go's 80, 80s Portland. Yeah, yeah. There was a gal named Connie. Nobody knew her last name. Uh, who would come in and make coffee every morning. And she, w- she had been in the porno films. Yeah, and so she was a professional, and uh, 
uh, I'm going to give her a credit at the end of Courier and kidnap Gabriel. <laughs> That's the coffee maker. The coffee lady. Yes. Well, it's been it's been <laughs> fantastic being able to sit down and talk to you about this stuff and, and just getting some more context about Portland filmmaking and these names that kind of pop up uh, every time we talk about them. So I wanted to, to thank you for, for coming in. I've um, got two questions oh, yeah, left. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that was unresolved uh, for, from our first viewing of the film was the location of that shootout scene at the beginning of the film with all those small houses. Oh. Okay. Oh, right, right. All right. Was that Alpen Rose? Uh, no. That is down in Estacada. There's a big park down there, and there used to be a big, big logging Oktoberfest, and there was like these big log pieces of logs, hmm. and, and all those little huts and things existed for that, and there'd be this big logging competition <coughs> where... You know, the, the, they would climb trees or oh, what, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. what loggers did. And that, a lot of that stuff was still in that park when we shot that first shootout sequence. And we went there twice to get that because uh, we needed pickup shots later. So we went there a second time. And I've been there since then, and all that stuff is gone now, but the park, park is still there. Oh, interesting. So that was shot all down in Estacada. And then uh, near Sandy, you know, that little bridge that goes over the Sandy River, uh, right near Troutdale? Sure. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then there's a road just on the other side that leads to Estacada. Well, some of the car chases were shot on that okay. road. Okay. And, like, one shot of the car chase would be on that road, and then another shot of the car chase would be up and, you know, uh, on the way up to Rocky Butte. And yep. there was a scene we shot on the top of Rocky Butte, yeah, too. with the colonel. Yeah. yeah, with the colonel. And that scene had to be shot four times for technical <laughs> reasons. Uh, <laughs> and um, And then the entire soundtrack had to be dubbed because the synchronization mechanism on either the camera or the Nagra tape recorder hardly ever worked both at the same time. One of them was always malfunctioning. And we all nagged Tom, or I nagged Tom, like, please get these things fixed because we're going to be a month editing this just the scratch track on mm -hmm. this film to get it back in sync so we can use that as a guide to dub the film. And the more stuff we shoot, the more work we're going to have to do without these, without this equipment working. And the camera didn't have a blimp on it to muffle the sound, so it sounded like a lawnmower all the time, all throughout these scenes. <coughs> and so Tom finally fixed the synch synchronization mechanism on both things. And there was one time when we were just outside his studio filming a pickup shot, and right next door to his studio was a dentist office, and we were out there shooting. And while we were shooting, uh, a station wagon pulled up with about six people in it, and I guess a couple of kids were going to go in to see the dentist, okay? And we were shooting a shot, and there was a lot of chatter going on among Tom and the small crew. And Tom got upset, and he said, well, who's directing this film anyway? And so I tried to get, her, get a laugh out of everybody. I said, well, counting the people in the station wagon, maybe about 18. <laughs> <laughs> Tom was not amused. And I had set the, the tape recorder on the ground because it's really heavy. And I had the microphone and everything all ready to go. And he came over and he kicked oh, man. the recording machine and broke the sync oh. mechanism again. So, <laughs> and so there, that was the end of that. So we had to redub the entire film. The only piece of original sound I got was the uh, when J.D. is crying with his dead wife. I insisted that the camera back up so I could get in close, and he would use a longer lens to get in close uh, so that I could get decent sound on that one because mm. Joey Johnson acted his heart out for mm. that scene. A, a magnificent performance. He was an excellent actor. He still is. 
uh, and he was also great to work with. He was he was always up and cheery, and you know, and we were all depressed and bogged down and stuff. He'd come on with big smiles and things. So he was great to work with. That's cool. Uh, he lives down in Salem now, and I think he works for the state of Oregon. Yeah, wow. I think so. Yeah, and um, uh, by the way, I also arranged uh, in 2009. We had the 25th anniversary of when we all worked on the film. I arranged three different reunion parties. And so Joey came to one of those. And oh, fun. The, yeah, those were a lot of fun, too. Sure. And um, so it was great to see all these it guys. Like, it's again. like a weird summer camp bonding thing to survive a production like this. Yeah, when you work on a film, you really wind up bonding oh, with sure. the crew, you know. And, well, and especially yeah. when it sounds like it's chaotic and ridiculous and, and all of that. It's yeah. You're all in it together. But it was also fun, too. We, we you know, a lot of us weren't being paid, and so we just decided we're going to have fun doing this, too. And so we kind of brought, tried to bring that attitude to it when we weren't depressed or upset about how the film was turning out. And uh, like I say, Ron Schmidt really saved that film. Mm. Mel, Mel Fletcher saved that film. Uh, Gerald Howard, who is now a uh, uh, um, model animator, he, he worked in clay mm. and, and foam rubber. He worked for Will Vinton. He was a, an animation director for ABC TV for a, a TV series called Bump in the Night, a children's Saturday morning series. He's an excellent animator. But back then, he had hardly worked in the film industry at all, and he came and helped us out with sound editing hmm. toward the film. He did sound editing on that. Wow. Film. And uh, I recommended him to be hired at Will Vinton's, and Vinton hired him, and he definitely proved himself there, and so he got his animation career started that way. And he's still in, he went down to LA for a while and he came back to Portland. And I think the last I heard, he was profiled on uh, Oregon Outbeat on OPB. Mm. And the last I saw, he was making a film about that giant Paul Bunyan statue that's in North Portland. Yeah. And, yeah. and it comes to life and starts walking down the street oh, or fun. something. Huh. So I think I think he may be still working on that, and I don't know any details about it. That's cool. Yeah. So he, you know, there's he's like the other guy besides Gus Van Zandt, who's really launched a professional career, and has had the talent to pull it off. Uh, who emerged out of Tom Shaw's dungeon of filmmakers? <laughs> well, before we wrap up here tonight, Dan, is there anything else that you brought with you that you wanted to share with us and, or show us? Well, mostly stories, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know, you know, the, I have some visual stuff here, but I don't know whether it's possible. There, You have a shot of Tom Shaw on your computer that I sent you. I do, but I'm not broadcasting anything other than sound from my computer. Oh, okay. Um, is there any? But yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll, use, I'll use that as one of the... the um, the stills stills for for this episode and for the for the when i put it up on youtube as well yeah so. tom shaw was hired to pose for a money magazine yeah it's a great picture yeah a local one yeah and so they posed him at this billboard or blackboard he looks yeah. like a coach there yeah, yeah. and yeah. and uh, so that's what tom shaw looked like you know old crusty i mean he's just the very definition of the word crusty yeah. with a c <laughs> uh, and um uh, everybody who ever worked for him, uh, who was friends or not, uh, remembers his gravelly voice and his personality and the fact that he was generous with uh, all yeah. the local filmmakers. you got to give him credit for that. Yeah. And his talent as a you know, director uh, is questionable, but <laughs> he was a, a part of the film scene, and there was an awful lot of interconnectedness between local filmmakers because of Tom Shaw being one of the fulcrum points hmm. right. for, you know, Portland's filmmaking along with the Northwest Film and Video Center, 
uh, which and there's still a fulcrum and the Center for the Moving Image when it existed at Portland State University. Tom Taylor there later uh, worked at Portland Cable Access and formed a uh, a production company for seniors. And he ran that for several years before he passed on. And then Andreas Steinem passed on, too. So uh, both of them are gone. But Bill Foster and the gang over at the Northwest Film and Video Center are still thriving. And if you want to take some pretty good film classes, that's where you want to go. So That's great. Well, thank you once again for, for coming in here and, and telling us your stories and helping keep this part of Portland's history uh, alive and, and remembered. So, so yeah. thank you for that. Um, I've become the, the archivist uh, of Tom Shaw. I've been yeah. consciously collecting everything I could about Tom Shaw and his movies. And I'm going to be turning, eventually turning all this stuff over to the Oregon Historical Society oh, and, and maybe the Multnomah County Library. Right. So that not only the memory of Tom Shaw, but all these other people who sure. worked for him and with him and knew him uh, gets preserved. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a historian and preservationist yeah. myself. Yes, so. you're, that's, that was, our, I believe, our, our word for it on the way home was not preservation. Collector. Well, and, but well, it was, there was, was a specific word, a catalog, catalog yeah. I believe, is what we... That, too. Yeah. See, yeah. I've worked for libraries. i worked for the... That makes uh, perfect uh, sense. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. it all clicks together. Yeah. I, I, the audiovisual department at PSU, I worked there for five years, and that's part of the library system at PSU. And so, you, yeah, I've got that kind of mind where, you know, the cataloging and filing yeah. and being able to retrieve information. Yeah, well, Every no. job I've had ever since or before was making some kind of order out of chaos. I worked for a bank uh, 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 creating a record system in their vault. I worked for the post office for a while sorting mail, getting the right mail to the right place, you know. So yeah, every yeah. job I've ever done had something to do with making order out of chaos, and that's what I did at Tom Shaw's place, too. That's a perfect description of, of probably yeah. working with Tom Shaw. So yeah. thank you. Yes, order thank you once chaos. again for, Burden, for all of that. Yeah. Uh, um, I'll do a quick wrap-up here. Uh, uh, head to funemploymentradio.com, who is a proud sponsor of this show. Their 10-year anniversary is coming up in November, so that's that's great. Uh, they do podcast uh, five right. days a week. Um, you can hear me and Mark on the Mark and Todd cast, so you can go over yeah. there, do a little science science and humor podcast uh, most every week that we're not doing this. And Brian, what is the Unipiper up to right now? We are preparing for the Weird Portland Gala. Very yes. exciting. So uh, check out uh, if you want to get involved in the weird scene in Portland and stay up to date on what uh, is, is going on and uh, be a part of that action. You can buy yourself a ticket to the Weird Portland Gala on November 7th at weirdportlandunited.org slash gala. Perfect. Uh, thank you guys for all listening. I'm going to take you out with a little bit more of uh, your music, Dan. This one called The Chase, which we listened to early. So we will see you guys later. Thanks for having me. Yes, thank, thank you. you. for coming. Well, I'm going to skip. We already played that part. Mm-hmm.